Let me just start by telling you, uh, back when I was a bachelor and Jill and I started dating, uh, she had to whip me into shape. Let's just be blunt about it. See, I, as a bachelor, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for me to, uh, well, to, you know, go through all the dishes that I have before I would wash them. So, you know, you finish and you just put it in the sink. And, of course, you know, why wash dishes when there's another one in the cupboard that you can use? And so, honestly, and I'm not exaggerating here, sometimes those dishes in the sink, well, they got a little furry. Let's just say that. <laughs> but, you know, they cleaned up. They cleaned up after a while. And, and I had a vacuum. I had a vacuum as a bachelor. But my motto was vacuum schmackum. You know what I'm saying? I mean... So there's a few crumbs on the carpeting. You know, I get them on my feet. I can pick them off and throw them away. It's really not that big of a deal. Uh, laundry, you know. Um, I, do, I just, you know, laundry and me. Let's just say that I had enough clothing that I didn't really have to do laundry very often. And if you wore some things more than once, you could really stretch it out. I just, you know, I mean, I... When Jill started dating me, I think she used the word gross. <laughs> I was, you know, I mean, I was working long hours, and when I wasn't working, there was fun to be had. You know, I had to have a good time. I'm a young guy, you know, having a good time. And, and so, um, you know, I didn't really have time to keep the place clean. But then we started dating, and, well, you know, you got to... Impress, shall we say. So, she whipped me into shape. To me, it wasn't that bad. To Jill, it was filthy. <laughs> well, we're in this series entitled Brave. And uh, it's a study through the book of Nehemiah. And we've come actually to the very last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Thank you all for who have been kind of sticking with me through this. But uh, we now arrive at chapter 13, and we are going to actually cover this last chapter in this, this week and next week, and then we'll finish up this series. And the Israelites, uh, Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to build the wall around Jerusalem, and the Israelites, if you read the book of Ezra, which is a contemporary of Nehemiah, he went there to build the temple. And Nehemiah went there to build the wall, and the temple is there in the center of Jerusalem, and the Israelite people are gathering in the temple to meet with God. God dwelt there, and He was meeting there with them, and, uh, and they were worshiping Him. And yet, what they were doing in the temple, to them, was like no big deal. Like to them, it was like, you know, it's fine, it's no, you know, everything is just, it's just not too bad. But what they were doing in the temple during the days of Nehemiah, in God's eyes, was a big deal. In God's eyes, it was gross. It was filthy. And so, in chapter 13, at the beginning of the chapter, the Jewish people are listening to the Bible being read to them, and a light bulb goes on. And the first thing we're going to see this morning as we dive into uh, Nehemiah 13, is that they had to clean out the temple. They realized, oh, what we're doing is wrong. 
So if you have a Bible handy, you can go to Nehemiah 13. If you don't have a Bible handy, we'll have it up here on the screen. Uh, But in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 1, it begins with these words. It says, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. By the way, you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, 23, verses 3 through 5. And if you go there, I love verse 5 of Deuteronomy 23, because the reason why he turned the curse into a blessing was it says because he loved them. God loved them, and he wouldn't curse them. Verse 3 So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, more specifically, they actually excluded them from the worship in the temple while they were there gathering to focus on God. Now, you may remember the story of Balaam. Maybe maybe some of you uh, don't remember the story of Balaam. Balaam was a strange guy. I mean, you read about Balaam in the Old Testament and you're like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? I don't know. He seemed to mix like um, paganism. As, and sorcery, as well as like focusing on the one true God, the God of Israel. Now, when you think about Balaam, he's really not the famous person. He's not the one that maybe comes to mind. The famous person with Balaam was his donkey. I don't know if you realize this, but Balaam is like, you know, been sent to go curse uh, the Israelites, like it says here. And in, num- in Numbers 22, he's heading out with the donkey. The donkey won't move. And he starts beating the donkey, beats the donkey three times. The donkey finally just lays down. And then what makes the donkey so famous is that God actually opens up the mouth of the donkey, this female donkey. And she says to Balaam, she says, what, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, if you were Balaam and your donkey starts talking to you, what would be your reaction? I would probably freak out a little bit. I told you, Balaam was a strange dude, right? What does Balaam do? He starts chit-chatting with the donkey. He starts having this conversation back and forth with the donkey, like arguing with his donkey. Well, Balaam, again, as he's going toward the Moabites, God tells him, you have to bless my people. You can't curse them. Again, Numbers 22 through Numbers 24. You can read the whole story. But, um, but Balaam does what God tells him to do, and he blesses the Israelites. And, uh, and these Ammonites and these Moabites, I mean, um, where did they all come from? I mean, you know, who are these people? And uh, they kind of have an odd beginning to them as well. First of all, you might remember Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham in the Old Testament. And uh, Lot and his wife and his daughters were in Sodom when God wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And you may remember that Abraham is like begging him not to. And he kind of gets whittles it all the way down to just Lot and his family are the only ones in the, in the town to actually you know, worry about. So God takes Lot, his wife, and his daughters out of town and he destroys with fire Sodom and Gomorrah. Some of you, you, you recall this story? So Lot, his wife, and his daughters are going up the mountain and he says, don't even look back. And Lot's wife looks back, and what happens to her, remember? She turns into a pillar of salt. Remember that? I mean, this is a bizarre, bizarre thing, but it's true. So, so, there, so now it's just Lot and his daughters. Well, the daughters uh, come up with this idea, 
that they're going to, you know, continue the bloodline, continue, you know, the descendants. And, uh, and they decide that the way to do this, they figure that this is how it's going to be done. The way to do it is to actually let's sleep with our dad. And, and, then, um, and then we'll just continue the bloodline. So one night they get Lot drunk, super drunk, and the one daughter sleeps with him. And the next night they get Lot drunk again, their dad, and the second daughter sleeps with them. Now, when you're hearing this story, aren't you kind of like, oh, I mean, that's just gross, right? That, that was God's reaction. Oh, that's just gross. But to these young ladies, they, they didn't think it was that big of a deal. They thought, you know, we're getting the, we're, what we, we need to do, we're doing. Well, so one of the daughters gives birth to a son, and she names him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. The other daughter gives birth to a son, and she names him Ben-Ami, the father of the Ammonites. And this is where they all started. Now, God said that the Ammonites and the Moabites, uh, that they treated his people, the Jewish people, poorly. Again, they wanted Balaam to curse them, not to give them a blessing And so all the way up till Nehemiah's day, they were not allowed to be in the temple. Bottom line, the temple had to be cleaned. And this wasn't the first time. The temple had to be cleaned again and again. Again and again. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 4. Now, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they, were, they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils of the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So here's this storage room in the temple, and it, it was a sacred place as well, and it was consecrated, it was set apart for a holy purpose, to hold all these holy items. And what does Eliashib the priest do? Well, he's got this relative named Tobiah, and he says, why don't we just go ahead and clear that storehouse out, and we'll make you an apartment in there. We'll basically set up an apartment for you, and everybody was in on it, and he thought, you know, it's probably a good move. Well, <laughs> the reality is that um, Tobiah... I don't know if you remember who this guy was, but Tobiah was not even supposed to be in the temple. Yeah, go back to the beginning when we first met Tobiah. uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10. Notice what it says in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10. When Sanballat the Horabite and Tobiah the Ammonite official. The Ammonites weren't supposed to be in there. They had to cleanse the temple. And as as a matter of fact, there's two other times through the book of Nehemiah that the temple had to be cleansed again and again in chapter 9 and verse 2, in chapter 10 and verse 28, and all actually throughout the history of the Old Testament. This is a theme, that the temple had to be cleaned. That, That it seems like there was some defilement of the temple, something that needed to be cleaned, and it just seems like over and over again, this was what had to be had to happen. This was a holy place. This is where God dwelt, and again and again it had to be cleaned. Now the best approach would be to notice the dirt. Eliashib didn't seem to notice the dirt. 
you know, he didn't seem to see anything wrong with it. It's kind of like when I was a bachelor. It probably would have been greatest if I would have, you know, wooed my now wife back then a little bit better with kind of noticing the dirt, but she's gracious enough to not have it be too big of a black mark against me, and here we are so many years later. <laughs> but Eliashib, Eliashib should have had eyes to see the mess that Nehemiah saw. Look at verse 6. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king after some time, however, I asked leave from the king. So Nehemiah went to Jerusalem. He builds the wall. He gets everything set up. And then he goes back to Artaxerxes, the king, it says, of Babylon. Actually, he's the king of the Persian Empire who overtook all of Babylon. That's why they just said the king of Babylon. He was, he was over that empire as well. And, uh, and if you were with us for the very first week, you remember in chapter 1, the very last sentence, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king which means he was one of the highest officials in the Persian Empire for the king. And he went back to serve him. And now he's asking to come back to Jerusalem again. And it says in verse 7, I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done with for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Now I want to highlight something here in this verse. Notice that he went to Jerusalem and learned about, get this, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Eliashib was doing a favor to Tobiah. Eliashib, no doubt, thought, you know, this, this room can easily be used for you. I mean, it's probably uh, it's a place where you can stay. No doubt, Eliashib thought, this is a good thing. But when Nehemiah comes back, he calls it evil. Now, the fact of the matter is, God's way is the right way. And when we don't do it God's way, it's the wrong way. We might think, well, this is a good thing. I know it's a good thing. Everything's fine. But if it's not in alignment with what God has, then it's not the right way. It's the wrong way. Eliashib thought he was doing something good. But in reality, he was doing something very bad. What Eliashib did was wrong. What Eliashib did was dirty. In God's eyes, it was gross. Nehemiah called it evil. And he noticed the dirt and he addressed it. Nehemiah addressed the problem. Look at verse 8. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God and the grain offerings and the frankincense. Nehemiah saw the wrong, and he addressed it. Nehemiah realized there's something that's not right here, and we have got to fix it. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't come up with a consensus. I wonder what everybody else saw, thinks. He knew it was wrong. He didn't him and haw about it. When he knew it was wrong, he got the job done. He needed what he had. He needed to do what he had to do, and he did it. Here's the reality of all of what I'm talking about. The reality is, there is no temple anymore in Jerusalem. 
The reality is, this was then. That was then. And this is now. And we could easily read through this text in Nehemiah and think, you know what? It's talking about that culture back then. It doesn't apply to us. I mean, what difference does it make that Nehemiah was clearing out the temple way back when? And I would just say, hold on a second. Before we say, well, you know, that's so cultural back then, it's really not applicable to us. I say, wait a minute, hold on. Here is a Bible study method that we all must practice. A Bible study method is when we're reading the Bible, particularly when we're in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does the New Testament say about what the Old Testament says? Does the New Testament say anything that might help us understand how this applies to our life today? What does the New Testament say about what the Old Testament has to say? In the Old Testament, the temple, the place where God dwelt with his people, where they connected with him, was that building there in the center of Jerusalem. Today, God dwells in us. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you trust that he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for your sins, And you know, you believe deep in your soul that yes, he rose from the grave and that he gives us the gift of eternal life. If you put your faith in Jesus, then you know that he sends the Holy Spirit in us. It's called being born again. God himself takes up residency in us. Here's the truth. Every Christian is God's temple. You realize that? Every single Christian is God's temple. If you are a Christian, you are the temple of God. Let me point you to the New Testament. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18. It says flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body, his physical body. And now look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Jesus paid for you and me by by His own blood. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Our physical bodies are the temple of of the Holy Spirit. He has taken up His residency in us and it says that we are to flee immorality because of this. That we are to make sure that we keep the temple clean. We're called to notice the dirt and address it over and over and over again. The cost of this temple was paid for by Jesus. And now this is important. We are not our own. We're not our own. We're owned by God. Therefore, glorify God with our physical bodies. You and I are infinitely valuable to God. Do you realize this? There is absolutely nothing else in all of creation that is more valuable than you and me. 
And God has chosen to take up His residency in us. He has made our physical bodies His abode. His home. Jesus even said it in John 14.23. My my first hourly wage job was minimum wage when I was 14. I was working at the Rafters Restaurant for $3.25 an hour. For $3.25 an hour. What do you young whippersnappers get nowadays, huh? What is minimum wage now? Like 35 bucks an hour or something like that? I mean, so I'm a dishwasher. I was 14, like I say. I, I was a dishwasher at the Rafters restaurant. Now, Rafters isn't open anymore, so I can tell you this story, I think, in good conscience. So I... Um, so the way it works is there was a dishwasher in the corner and uh, the sink was here and this little shelf here. I slid the di- you know, I'd rinse off the dishes here. I'd slide them into the dishwasher and then it was in a corner so then it would come out this way and the clean dishes were here and then I'd put the dishes away. So this is what I did. I washed dishes and, and I got to tell you, the Rafters was a, was a popular steakhouse and seafood. Oh, it was, I mean, people, I mean, it was, it was packed like every weekend. I, I worked a lot, you know, like every weekend. And I remember this Saturday night, I'm doing the dishes, you know, like a crazy man. I'm just, you know, constantly spraying them off and put them in the dishwasher, running the dishwasher. Then they come out the other side, all the steam comes out, you know, and come out the other side. And I'm going, you know, gangbusters washing dishes like all night long. It's in the heart of the busyness of the night. And, uh, and as I'm going, I don't know why, but I like looked underneath that, that stainless steel countertop and underneath on the wall, there's this little tiny bug about that long and about that wide. So it's, you know, it's a pretty good-sized little bug. And so I pointed it out to my boss. My boss's name was Jerry. And I said, Jerry, notice that bug? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he grabs his can out from wherever he got it, and it says, like, cockroach fog. And he goes underneath, and he just sprays that little bug right underneath, right next to the dishwasher, right? He just goes down and, like, sprays out this fog. And I have got to tell you, like, in an instant all of a sudden from out from behind the dishwasher boom like thousands of cockroaches i am not kidding you like the wall the nice white tile walls turned black i mean it was like boom they just like we like we just hit you know the mothership you know what i'm saying i mean there's like cockroaches everywhere and they're like like flying you know boom they're fast a fast little animal i mean they're like crawling and i mean it's, you know, we're like instantly, ah, you know, and you're just grabbing anything, you're like banging, trying to kill these cockroaches. And Jerry kind of goes over by the door, you know, that's in and out of the kitchen. It's got those little square windows. Takes a little napkin, puts them over each window, you know, so nobody can see. <laughs> and then he's back, you know, we're, we're just killing cockroaches all over the way there, like going around the corner back by the salad and all this. Oh, I mean, it was just like, I know. It was like, ooh. I mean, I'm telling you, and I'm like getting the willies just telling you. It was, and I, ooh, I was just thinking, you know, <laughs> Maybe that feeling that you have when you hear about those cockroaches coming out from behind the dishwasher is just a small little taste of the feeling that God has against the sin in our life. I mean, He sees us as so wonderful, so beautiful. I mean, we are His temple. He absolutely, like we are infinitely valuable to Him. And if we don't keep his temple clean, 
It's like we let the cockroaches hang out, you know, in the hidden places of our lives. And it like instantly like contaminates us. It like instantly makes us go, ew, you know, that's gross. That's, I think, the feeling that, that God has. We have to flee immorality. We have got to exterminate that immorality in our lives. We have to notice the dirt. And we have to be committed to constantly going after cleaning it again and again. Well, not only are we God's temple individually, but we are also together God's temple. We are together we, we together are God's temple is how I have it in your outline. Together, corporately, we make up His temple. Go over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? It's another name for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And now look at verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, corporately, are the temple, singular, of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Corporately, together, God dwells among us. That we are His body. We are the church. We are His temple. When we gather here, He is in our midst. He dwells here with us. When we worship Him together as we've been doing, He's here. He's right among us. When we make a judgment call, when we're seeking wisdom, how to go on something, and we're doing it together, He's there. The Bible says we are a holy priesthood and that we together are the household of God. I'll jump down to chapter 7 and verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. He then says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Wow. That's a tall order right there. That is a tall order. Let me just, let me just see a show of hands. Ready for this? How many of us can say, all right, I am there. I have perfected holiness in the fear of God. I don't have my hand up either, by the way. None of us, right? That's like an impossible task. But it's like a north star, you know, that just keeps directing us. We keep going in that direction. We must keep going in that direction. And therefore, corporately together, we have got to be a place where we don't have to be perfected in holiness quite yet, but we're going after it together. That means that corporately, we've got to be a place that we can be honest. We've got to be a place where we can be transparent. We as His church, 
as the temple of God must be committed to this cleaning, this cleansing of ourselves, growing to be more and more like Christ, where we notice the dirt and we address it. We don't just kind of sweep it under the rug or just kind of, you know, leave it there, vacuum, schmackum. No, no. We go after it. But we address it in a way that we bring dignity to one another. Because we're the temple of God. I mean, we are infinitely valuable to God and we've got to treat each other as infinitely valuable to one another. And so we must continue to work at as His church, as this temple, we've got to continue to work at creating an environment of grace. An environment of grace where we give grace and we receive grace. Well, this, um, this series is entitled Brave. And clearly, Nehemiah was quite brave to address the filth. Are we brave enough to live as God's temple the way He wants us to live? With God's help, because He's in us, and with the help of one another, can we make sure that we commit ourselves to keeping this temple clean, both individually and corporately? And that we see the dirt, we address it, and we do it again and again until one day we'll see our Savior in heaven.